I got a lot of harassment. And I'm not talking about like, you know, people just calling into question my integrity. I had people like threatening my life, you know. I had people like, you know, threatening to kill me. And while that was going on, I had to find these little moments of humanity with the people that I could. My name is Dan Koch. Welcome to Depolarize. It's no secret that American society has become more polarized over the last few decades. Research supports it, but so does our experience, especially in online discussions on Facebook, on Twitter, and in the infamous comment sections. I and many others think that this increasing divide between left and right, liberal and conservative, religious and atheist, is a dangerous thing. And the worst part is, it's so easy to get sucked in. But I'm going to plant my flag right now. The other half of America that disagrees with me or disagrees with you are not morons, and most of them are not evil. So together, let's practice some charity toward those we disagree with. That's what I hope to do on this podcast with the help of some brilliant guests. I want to use reason to analyze arguments, and I want to hear stories that increase our empathy. I have my own perspective, and I'm sure that will come out pretty quickly, but my goal is not to convince you that I'm right. Rather, I want to help us all find some middle ground. I'm open to having my mind changed and my heart expanded, and I hope you are as well. Let's do it. Okay, I've got Jared Yates Sexton with me. Uh, Jared, I found you on Twitter when you were live tweeting a Trump rally because you were covering it for, what was the publication? Atticus Review. Atticus Review. Okay, but you've also contributed elsewhere and you also do some other things, so why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Um, I've been a contributor for the New Republic and had some of my work in the New York Times. Uh, Full-time, I work as an assistant professor of creative writing at Georgia Southern University, and uh, I write stories, novels, all that good stuff. And then this political season, you've been covering a lot of Trump campaign stuff, correct? Yeah, I've been I've been covering pretty much everybody I could make it to. I've been to a couple of Bernie things, uh, a couple of Clinton things, but primarily I've been on the Trump beat. I was, and many other people were, pretty aghast at that first kind of tweet storm of yours. Not a tweet storm because it was intentional. <laughs> tweet storm is now, I think, reserved for like outbursts. But you were live tweeting this rally, and I remember specifically you saying certain things like starting to feel physically afraid a couple people around me are maybe picking up that i'm not here to support trump uh there was some tweets about what was going on between the crowd and the press pen let's start there which rally was that and when was that in the campaign and what was that experience like just in general that was in uh greensboro north carolina and that would have been in mid-June, I think it was. And that was right around the time of the uh, the Orlando nightclub shooting. It's, and I think this was probably two days after that, maybe. And uh, what had happened was I went to this rally. And it was actually the second Trump rally that I went to. Uh, the first one was in South Carolina. It was actually the night that he announced the proposed ban on Muslims. And, uh, and that was like a pretty intense rally in its own way. 
But um, this one uh, definitely felt like more of the sort of um, hatred and narrative had sort of set in. So the thing I think that got the most attention was uh, there was a pre-speaker, uh, a setup speaker for Trump, who basically was like, you know, we send out our thoughts and our hearts are with the, the victims in Orlando. And somebody in front of me yelled out, the gays had it coming. And it was this very, very sort of noxious thing. And then later on, um, I heard, you know, a lot of racial slurs. I heard a lot of misogynistic slurs, things like that. And it all sort of fed off of each other. And it was like this really weird mix of of toxicity because I was actually standing near a, a guy who was going to be a protester. And it was quite obvious that he was going to be a protester. And the crowd singled him out because at these rallies, they're always looking for who is planning on interrupting. And if they figure out who it is, or even if they think they know who it is, they will try and physically intimidate these people, pretty much to let them know not to get comfortable. When you say they, do you mean the Trump supporters or actually Trump's staff and security detail? Well, the staff security detail does a pretty good job of sort of wrangling in supporters. They will definitely point you out and they'll come over to you and like stand over your shoulder in order to like sort of, you know, make you know that you're known. Uh, The crowd actually like gets in people's faces. Like the guy that I was watching, they were actually like like basically spitting in his face and, you know, they, everything Trump would say, they were like, are you going to clap for that? Are you going to clap for it? And it's, it's this physical intimidation that sort of took place. Wow. These rallies are not your average political rallies for a GOP candidate. There's something unique going on here. There's something uniquely scary and uniquely dark about it. Um, but one of the things that we're going to try and do today is, find some compassion for the people at those rallies, or at the very least, the people who are going to vote for Trump, even if they might not attend a rally and spit in a protester's face. I mean, we don't need to, we don't need to like baptize the actions of everybody, but we are going to try and understand this from a human perspective. So speaking of human perspective, you're a fiction writer and you teach Mm -hmm. creative writing. In what way has your experience as a writer, in what way did that color your experience of these people? In terms of like, writers need empathy, writers need to put themselves in the minds of a character. You can't just write a really bad villain who has no humanity or whatever. So how did that color your experience at the rallies? Well, you know, I, I talk to my students all the time. And one of the main tenets and parts of creating good fiction is to create compelling characters and understandable characters. And one of the things you have to do is you have to avoid um, caricatures, right? You have right. to avoid you have to avoid creating uh, scarecrows and, and and you know people to knock over and, and destroy. Um, <clears throat> it made me go into these rallies and look at these people who, by the way, I mean they say some very very awful things. I mean I've heard I've heard some really really awful things. And it has made me go in and try and understand where these people are coming from, as opposed to thinking that they're completely evil. Um, Because if you think they're completely evil, if you think that, you know, as as Hillary Clinton had called them irredeemable, if you think that that's what's going on, then all of a sudden you're looking at a world that is not just polarized, but is actually dichotomous, right? You're looking at light and good and evil and bad and 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 I think there's a there's a real danger in doing that. And I actually think that looking at the world through that sort of a lens has actually gotten us to this place politically. And I think by continuing that, I think it's only going to make it worse. 
Now, you're actually working on a book about this political divide. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. Um, so I'm basically framing my experience of the election through the uh, the events that I've gone through, the, the things that I've seen. And one of the things that I'm trying to do is I'm trying to simultaneously, while telling the story of the election, I'm trying to sort of delve into and investigate what it is that has led to our political polarization, why it is that we're not just so divided, but we're actually sort of living in our sort of separate realities. Um, one of the phrases that I've been tossing around a lot lately is that, you know, we're not living in one nation. We're living in 300 million different nations. Mm-hmm. And, and I, think by, I think that is deep at its heart the root of why this has happened, along with a lot of economic factors, socioeconomic factors. And uh, I'm just trying to take the, uh, the sort of larger view of, of why we are where we are instead of prognosticating and just looking at the political part of it. Okay, so why don't you give us a few insights as you've been doing that research and and working on that. Give us a few yard posts along the way of things that are different today than they were 10, 20, 50 years ago. Well, one of the big things, and this is, you know, at the very, very foundation of this whole deal, is that we now live in a society where it's a possibility for people to create and, and, and sort of prune their, their existence, Right. Uh, so, for instance, and one of the reasons I was so excited about doing this podcast is I think this is exactly the kind of thing a country needs. We now live in a society where you can basically live your entire life without having to hear dissenting opinions. Um, you know, in the past, there was a thing, and, and I've been doing so much research on this over the past few days. There's this thing called the fairness doctrine. And basically what it said was that radio shows, TV shows, print, all these things, because they were allowed in the country, and obviously you had these constitutional requirements, you also had to give fair hearing to opposing opinions. It didn't mean that opposing opinions had to get as much time as your opinion, but you at least had to let differing opinions come into this sphere, right? And what happened was when the Fairness Doctrine actually got voted down, I believe it was in 1987, it opened the door for people to just listen to radio shows that never had a dissenting opinion. And then whenever you had the polarized cable news networks come about in the 1990s, all of a sudden it wasn't just on your radio, right? It was on TV. Then when the internet came along, also in like the mid nineties or the late nineties, all of a sudden you could go to the sites that you wanted to go to and they became more polarized the longer the internet came around. So what happened is on the right and on the left, you suddenly had the opportunity to prune these little um, bubbles for yourself where you never had to challenge your own preconceived notions or to use business language. Uh, marketers found niche markets for the message they wanted to deliver and they made money off of that. And by the way, that feeds into an even bigger thing, which I think uh, is is really unlooked un- at uh, quite a bit, actually. Because of consumerism, we now identify ourselves as as products, basically, right? And basically what we buy, how we present ourselves is our identity, Right. So like you go on Facebook and you have your about page. Right. And you're choosing your music. You're choosing your movies, your political affiliation. Those are what define you on the Internet. Right. So if someone comes along 
And all of a sudden, like, I, I don't know if you're into sports or not, but like, let's say, for instance, you're in Seattle, let's say you're a Seahawks fan, yeah. right? That sort of defines you because it's a personal care characteristic. You're into the Seahawks. If someone comes along, and by the way, I'm a 49ers fan. If I come along and I talk trash about Seahawks, I'm attacking you as a person, right? Because that's your fan affiliation. It's the same way now with politics. If I'm on the left and you're on the right, all of a sudden I'm not just attacking your political beliefs. I'm attacking you as a person. I actually want to, I want to say that it is even worse. So for the record, I'm a very tortured 49ers fan myself now living in Seattle. (laughs) Don't know what to do with that organization. I can't watch them play each other. It's very difficult for me. Uh, But when you trash a sports team, right, there is a level of play that is assumed. Mm -hmm. But if the format and the language used and the back and forth, all of the rules and all the norms for Facebook chatter or tweeting at each other, if all of that is the same, but you swap out sports team for political view, well, now you've actually hit someone even harder. And you're not even realizing that you are. You might be a Facebook user. In 06, you first get on Facebook. Oh, it's really fun to like talk shit about the teams that people like. And you get used to a certain kind of speaking. And you get used to a certain kind of argumentation. Jocularity. Yeah. And at that point, people are still reading the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal for their news. They're not actually on Facebook for their news. Fast forward 10 years. Now everyone's online for their news. And you've built in these ways of speaking on Facebook, on social media platforms. But you didn't even realize like the frog in the pot, the stakes got turned way up and you're using the same idioms. You're using the same norms. So, you know, I'm, I'm on Twitter a lot. Politics has sort of made me be on Twitter a lot. And all of a sudden, I've started looking at Twitter, and I've realized that what people are doing is they're, re- they're, they're releasing press releases, right? Their tweets are, like, announcing what they think and how they feel, mm. and it's sort of, like, pushing themselves as, as brands. So what's actually happening on two hands is people are interacting in this space where they have this back and forth that eventually goes bad, but they're also so entrenched in their thing because a brand has to be consistent. Right. And so you have to always be on the left or be on the right. And I've actually noticed even in my own interactions with followers and supporters that even if you say something about your your perceived own side. So even if I say something that's critical of like a Hillary Clinton, I get blowback as well from your own tribe. Right. It, it has to be ideologically pure. It's the exact same thing on both sides. Both of them are pushing themselves further to the edges. And any time that there's a moment where somebody does something that's perceived as, you know, off brand, all of a sudden they are like excoriated and, and, and they're, they're as bad as the, the people on the other side. I have found myself really worried to post anything critical about Hillary, even though I have criticisms of Hillary, but there's something going on where I'm like, well, I don't want to feed into that because I'm so worried about this other outcome, but I'm just, I'm making it worse if I, if I don't criticize my own candidate, because what I really should be doing, if I want people to listen to me on the other side is I should be showing them that I'm not just drinking the Kool-Aid, right? Yeah. And I think that's one of the things is we have these moments, I think, where you can make a sort of a, a partial understanding. Right. So one of the problems that I've had and I've had to sort of combat is 
when, you know, the, the tweets that you were talking about, when those first occurred, I got a lot of harassment. And I'm not talking about like, you know, people just calling into question my integrity. I had people like threatening my life. You know, I had people like, you know, threatening to kill me. And while that was going on, I had to find these little moments of humanity with the people that I could. Right. So I reached out to a lot of what you would call trolls or people who were basically trying to harass me online. And I found that if I got them one on one, usually by DMs or by emailing back and forth, I could talk to them. But the first thing that I had to do is I had to give them a parcel of, of conciliation, right? I had to tell them, you know what, as a, as a person that you would call liberal, I'm not entirely comfortable with some of the things that Hillary Clinton has done. I, I, I actually have these leftover problems from the 08 campaign. I think the way that she treated the Barack Obama uh, as opponent was really upsetting. And, you know, if I'm able to talk to people about that and give them just a morsel, like I said, of conciliation, most of the time they will give back to me a morsel where they're like, well, I don't really like Trump. Right. I really huh. like what he's doing. And so what actually ends up happening, you know, it's the old thing where like, politicians used to sit down and have a drink with each other and you know they had a moment of of this for that and all of a sudden you're like co-conspirators almost right right so so i've actually noticed that the more that you're able to do that the more that people will give you they'll believe you or they'll talk to you or they'll at least hear you out as long as you give them a morsel of that but we're so afraid to do it you know and why are we afraid to do it um I'll tell you this. This this is actually I, I think about this almost every day. So this whole thing where my whole like reportage blew up, right? I went from fourteen hundred followers to like over twenty thousand in like two days. That was one so, of those, yeah. <laughs> well, thank you. So uh, a couple of days after that, I woke up one morning and I finally felt like I had um, a grasp on the tiger, right? I kind of felt like I was getting my feet and, and, and a footing and I was starting to finally understand how to um, exist in this new sphere that had opened up. And I remember I woke up in the morning, I opened up Twitter and somebody had released a picture of Trump and Clinton at his wedding, right? Because, yeah, yeah. you know... Infamously, she went to his wedding. And it occurred to me, and, and by the way, I thought this whole time that people just wanted to hear little dumb thoughts that occurred to me or whatever, right? So I posted something that was like, if you think about it, Trump and Clinton, because they've passed each other in social circles for years, are probably the closest that two candidates have been since the days of the founding fathers, Right. Like every other presidential candidate who has opposed each other, they're in different lanes. Right. Mm. Once one's at Harvard's, one's at Yale, one is in business, one does this, whatever. So these candidates never really cross paths. And in all actuality, Trump and Clinton have been closer than any other two candidates that we've had. You just mean like in proximity of each other? Yeah, they've just yeah. known each other. Right. Um, Bill Clinton's played golf with Donald Trump like multiple times. Right. Right. This is just like these little coincidental acquaintanceships, right? But it's still closer than any others. So I just made this little uh, thing, and I felt decent about it. I went in the other room. I made a cup of coffee. And by the time I looked at my Twitter again, I had probably 20 to 30 people that were like, what are you doing, right? Why would you say something like that? Huh. And I, I suddenly realized, I was like, oh, that's right. What these people are coming to somebody for is they it, it's almost like they're supplementing their news by deciding that there are certain people they're coming to for certain things yeah and 
And a lot of these people are only interested in partisanship. They don't, they don't really want to have this conversation. They don't really want to have a give and take. And I've been able to sort of stretch that out, but I've, I've never forgotten what that feeling was. And like to look and see like what the, the effect of just like a little sort of non-consequential tweet was. Yeah. Interesting. Why, so why do you think though that it's hard for an individual person like, okay, let's say I show up at Thanksgiving dinner and you know, grandma's there and she says like, we got to keep those Muslims out of here, right? Or whatever. Why is it hard for me to say, Hey Grammy, you know, like, let me meet you halfway. Why do I, why is my social justice meter ringing off the hook? Why is my righteous anger light flashing? Why does that keep me from sort of coolly going, you know what? She grew up in a different time. She's had different experiences. It's not like she's an awful person. Where can I meet her halfway? But that's not my initial reaction. Why do you think that is? Well, you know, so I work with a lot of college-age students, right? And a lot of my students will talk to me, and, you know, obviously they're like 20 to 24 years old, somewhere in there, which is prime time for not understanding your parents, and your parents (laughs) not understanding them. Sidebar, I remember going home from college one time to my parents, and I was like, Mom, you should sell all of your jewelry and, like, give it to the poor. (laughs) That's right. Which, by the way, which, by the way, it's funny because it's like, when you're in college and you're first being exposed to things, you're so righteous. Oh, yeah. So I was a, I was a freshman when 9-11 happened. And then in 2003, I was 22 whenever the Iraq war was getting ready to, to take off. And I, was, I could not have been opposed more to the Iraq war. I was going to rallies. I was going to protest. I was writing poetry. You know, like I was, Oh, nice. You were, really, you were really whipping out the big guns with those poems. I was, I was changing the world with those poems, right? So yeah. I, I was gung-ho. I was writing in um, letters to the editor of every major paper I could. And I was going home. Um, to my, and I come from this little small town in Indiana. And I wrote a letter to the editor in Indiana, or this little small town, and really upset a lot of people in my town. And I, you know, every time that I was around somebody in my family, you know, they'd say awful things. They'd be like, let's bomb the Middle East until it's a a glass parking lot. Let's kill them all. Right. Like these terrible, awful things. And I couldn't stop myself from fighting. And I've looked back on it. And this is one of the things I talk to my students about now. I think at the heart of that, that there is care. I think that the reason that Grammy doesn't get by with saying awful things is because we don't want them to feel that way, right? There's almost an evangelical thing to it. Like we want them to be better or we don't want to, we don't want them to think that it's unchallenged and as a result that it's right. And I think that we're, we're unconsciously trying to save them or maybe we're just being completely righteous and, and awful to them. I'm, I'm not sure one or the other. I guess it could be both though. And it could be mingled. You're saying there's a sense of compassion for grandma that you don't want her to have these ridiculous beliefs that are clearly not going to lead her to a happier life. Well, and I'll say this, and and I'll bring it back around to Trump a little bit. Um, My family is the type of family that votes for Trump. 
It just is. Um, I come from a very, very poor background. Um, I come from a group of people who have been absolutely devastated by NAFTA, by globalism. I come from the type of family that a lot of them are racist. A lot of them are misogynistic. They have a lot of these sort of traits that, you know, define what you would say is, is the Trump campaign. And I look at them. There is a part of me that wants to say, I understand you're frustrated, but the person that you're throwing your weight behind is cravenly trying to use you and is the type of person who has used you your entire life. It's interesting. You come from a working class background in Indiana. I come from evangelical Christianity. Oh, I come from that too. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Well, West Coast evangelical Christianity. uh, And that's been a really hard thing for me this cycle. And I feel like the times on Facebook where I have kind of let fly a little more venom than I would want to have been when I've been thinking about evangelical support for Trump. And I really don't know if I understand my own instincts here or my own um, impulses here, but it feels like there's so much naivety. There's so much gullibility and that really frustrates me for some reason. And I think part of the reason I'm asking you why people have a hard time with this is because I'm trying to understand it in myself. I'm trying to understand, like, why does it make me so incensed that evangelical leaders will go for Trump? It might just be hard for us sometimes to not understand things. And that goes to your earlier point, which is if we live in our own universe, if we live in our own nation, the opposing side is no longer just different. It's inconceivable. It is inconceivable to me that you evangelicals would support Trump, right? But why is it inconceivable? Because I'm in an echo chamber. Well, and to go along with that, here's what I think is at the heart of it. And I think you're exactly right. The inconceivable part, and I think this actually is the difference between the left and right, because I actually, um, and at some point or another, we can talk about this. I, I took a road trip with a Republican and I learned some crazy things about how we're wired differently. But if I had to sit here and tell you, I would say that on the left, we look at the right and we say, how could you do this? It's inconceivable. And or there's like racism, sexism, xenophobia at the heart of it. Right. On the right, I think when they look at the left, they see evil. And I think that has to do with a lot of those evangelical roots. So, for instance, I come from a Baptist family that, you know, and, and we're talking like, Midwestern poor Baptist, which is a lot more sort of uh, speaking in tongues and visions and demons and all this stuff. yeah. Right. Brimstone and fire. And one of the things that I noticed that happened very, very quickly is that as soon as Barack Obama arrived on the political scene, he was portrayed, and a lot of people believe this, that he was the Antichrist. I, I saw a lot of that, yeah. Yeah, there was like this definite belief that this guy was like the end of times, because quite frankly, they're always looking for the end of time. I have been told my entire life, each Democratic nominee, that since I can remember, there was some chatter about he or she being the Antichrist. Exactly. And by the way, they've they've already moved on to Clinton, right? Clinton. And and by the way, I've even seen stuff that said that Clinton was, or uh, Obama's the false prophet because he spoke so well, and that he's actually leading to Clinton. Oh, that's, if that wasn't so sad, that would be so good. 
I agree. And that's the thing is I'm fascinated by that, the remnants of who I used to be and to see where it's gone. And I think that at its heart, it is this idea of, like you said, inconceivable. And if it's inconceivable, then either people are stupid or they're evil. Right. And it, yeah. it, there's like no in between. And those two things are going back to the word of the day. They're irredeemable. If you're stupid, you're stupid. If you're evil, you're evil. And I think that that's I think that's what makes the divide and, and that sort of understanding and empathy gap. So then, OK, so here we are, two guys on the left chatting on a podcast about the things that have incensed us to the most on the right. If we were to say right now, OK, let's practice depolarizing ourselves what are the type of things we should be doing like where should this conversation go literally right now where what should we talk about to humanize the cultures from which we come and not demonize them i think a lot of this stuff has to do with the beginning understanding that reality is different and by the way not different in the way that the media gives people but it's different in in experience right like not everybody who's poor is stupid or deserves to be poor right that's that's a that's actually a hard thing for some people to come to right yeah it's it's also hard for me to remind myself that not everybody who's rich is greedy and a jerk i have that punk rock ethic that i grew up with Exactly. And I think those are the things that actually they sort of keep us going day to day. Like I know, for instance, because I grew up working class that I have a chip on my shoulder when it comes to that stuff. Right. Like I automatically distrust wealth. And whenever I come across wealth, wealth has to prove itself to me that 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 wealth is not inherently greedy and awful. That's one of my own prejudices that I should have to work on. Right. right? But it gets me through my day. Or it has. I've gotten much better about it. You know, I've climbed up from working class to middle class. You mean to say that the chip on your shoulder keeps you working hard? It Well, for me, it keeps me working hard. It has served you well in some sense. Absolutely okay. it has. But for some people, it's not that it, it makes them work hard. It's that it gives them an escape, right? It gives sure. them something to hold on to. So, for instance... One of the things at the very heart of this, and, and not a lot of people really want to talk about this because it's not sexy. Economics is not sexy, right? And one of the things, it's a very, very complicated trail of things that has led to where we are. We are where we are. A large reason of why we have this divide is because we have a new economy that our government didn't foresee or really take care of, right? We have people like, so for instance, my family is factory people right? They've all been laid off. All the factories are gone, you know, because yeah. of NAFTA and because of these trade deals. That's a very complicated thing to talk about why NAFTA needed to happen. And by the way, you can agree or disagree with it. But on one hand, you can say, well, they sold off the country, right? And that's a lot easier to understand than globalism and reliant economies and how us trading with Mexico makes us safer, Right. And, right. and you know, so economics is hard. And, and, you know, we're a couple of people sitting here talking and, you know, we're basically claiming to be public intellectuals on here. Um, and that's <laughs> totally, that's totally okay. But you and I, 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 I don't know what your economic background is in terms of, of thought. I even have a hard time understanding it. Right. And, yeah, and I study this stuff. I study this stuff constantly. So for me to sit here and talk about it is strained. 
for somebody who hasn't had any experience with it whatsoever and doesn't maybe have an education that has taught them about economics or has gotten into politics. And, and by the way, history and civics aren't really taught anymore. Right. And so for somebody who doesn't have all these sort of ways to look at this, these lenses in order to make sense of all this, it is so much easier to say it's Mexico's fault. Right. Right. It's Mexico's fault and the Clintons sold us out. And it's so much easier to say that. And by the way, it also keeps me working day to day because it doesn't make me look in the mirror and say, well, this manufacturing job is gone. I need to go get a different job or get a different training, even though it's not my fault. Right. Right. And, And it's much easier to be angry about those things than it is to say, man, that's something really, really complicated. It really, really sucks. And now I'm going to do this. Furthermore, you're having that conversation with yourself in the midst of collecting unemployment and shopping at the dollar store and trying to survive. Which, by the way, to go along with all of that, this is the other thing that nobody wants to talk about, but I'll go ahead and do it because it's Sunday night. What am I doing? (laughs) Another thing at the heart of this is masculinity, right? We now live in this world where, um, you know, with, with the advent of social media and the proliferation of the internet, we now live in this world where masculinity is on trial more than ever before. What are you trying to say, bro? (laughs) Exactly. Just a couple guys (laughs) talking on Sunday, right? So we actually live in this sort of world where in the past, masculinity wasn't vilified. And the man of the house went to a factory, worked with his hands, made a living, supported his family, right? And even if he didn't make it ahead, even if he didn't make millions of dollars, he had the sweat on his brow and the satisfaction of a hard day's work. Totally, totally. Now that we don't have necessarily those jobs or that those jobs don't necessarily pay the bills that they used to, all of a sudden you have a lot of like trespassed on masculinity, right? You have a lot of people that all they've had is a masculine identity in order to keep them through. You know, you have a lot of very, very proud men who come from a line of proud men who basically it's like, well, I may not get everything I want in the world, but I have my pride, right? Totally. So now you have this new society that looks at masculinity and looks at its bad parts, which, by the way, masculinity needed reformed, right? They just did, and it leads to so many awful, toxic things. We did need a new idea of what it should be. We haven't given anybody any alternatives, right? Um, In a lot of ways, we don't reward sensitivity in men. We don't reward good behavior in men in that way, and society basically you know, calls into question their sexuality or their worth. And on top of that, you don't even have the work that used to keep people sated. You don't have the economy that actually rewards that. So you have a lot of people who have seen their entire world change, you know, and they they basically, you know, this is where you see um, all the, the deplorable thing. Right. Where people are like, yes, I'm deplorable. That's my identity. I'm I'm encroached upon. I am I am a person who is angry and this is my anger. And by the way, it doesn't hurt that they have a pig who is speaking to them. Right. Right. In this old um, masculinity that hasn't been rewarded and has been vilified. He's speaking to them in that tongue. And as a result, they are now getting all that hurt out in public where it wasn't allowed in the past. Yeah, I mean as you were saying all that stuff about masculinity, I mean, I even realized like I struggle with this a little bit being a guy who I make my living in my pajamas, writing music for television ads 
and I go out, you know, for beers with friends, some of whom do construction or do something with their hands. And it's like, I, I actually automatically feel, even though most people would probably look, oh, Dan, he's, he owns a house. He gets to write music for a living. He got to travel the world in a, in a rock band, but I have a problem and I, I like, I need to get cool outerwear that makes me more masculine and it might you know a good thing i got this beautiful beard because what if i didn't you know and and it's funny but if i wasn't able to make a living and i didn't have that masculinity i don't know what that would be i mean i think that would be even harder or if i had done it for years and then the work dried up because one of those guys you're talking about you know yeah you can imagine someone saying yeah well my wife she nags me and I don't, I don't much care for the way these things are going, but I, I worked with my hands and I bought this house and I own it free and clear and I provided for my family and my kids in college. There is such immense satisfaction in being able to say that. And now because of all of these factors, you know, trade and globalism and, and whatever, and then all the societal things, it is, it, it feels like a perfect storm for a certain segment of America. Well, and, and look at, look at it this way. I, I've been... I've been studying the, the generations. So we have our grandparents' generation, right? The greatest generation that was like called to action. You know, they suffered the Great Depression. They fought in World War II. Our grandparents were people who didn't have very much in the way of self, right? It was all mm. duty. It was duty to family. They stayed in unhappy marriages. They didn't chase their dreams, so to speak. They stayed in line. They played their part. The baby boomers come along and they start having the ability to have self, right? A little bit of self. But by the way, that entire generation is about the guilt of self, right? It's, mm. it's, they watch their parents struggle and have this duty, but yet they also know that they can be themselves, right? And so they're sort of torn apart. Our generation is all self, right? Our generation is all a group of people who it's like, I want to be happy. I want to do what I want. I'm going to do that. The baby boomers, and by the way, the grandparents, those two generations make up a large block of the voters that are voting for Trump, right? Yeah. They don't have duty anymore. They don't have a country that they recognize. They don't have the jobs that they used to have. They don't have the responsibilities that they used to have. They're all sort of gone. So as a result, they now have this uh, character crisis, I think, where they're, they have this inability. They're like, well, what now? What do we do now? Where are we? The country doesn't even look the way that it used to in the past. And, by the way, there are other groups, other races and other sexes. And by the way, you know, we're even starting to see gender change. They're starting to see all these bedrocks that society used to look like and how it used to function. And now that they're seeing other people get ahead and start to be established, you know, you're seeing minorities on TV shows. You're seeing minorities, uh, you know, holding big, large positions. Also, you're being told by cable news that those people are taking your opportunities. Those people are dangerous, but they're not being held accountable. All of a sudden, that personal crisis mixes with the public crisis. And all of a sudden, you're looking at this situation where you start hearing, I want my country back, right? I want yeah. to make America great again, which is all about making me great again, and making the personal great again. And, and I think it's reflected perfectly in the Trump campaign. That's one of the reasons it's, it's gone the way it has. Or not even just making me great again, like you're talking about the older generation. They want America to be great so that they have something that they can 
fight for. They ha- they can perform their civic duty for a country that they respect. Exactly. And there's, they're also seeing this sort of entropy of civic duty. I mean, and, and, and I'm sure oh, you've let's, seen... Oh, man, I totally agree with you on that. Yeah. Yeah, and they're starting to see this sort of... Um, you know, people don't volunteer necessarily, or people yeah. aren't people aren't participating in the public process. They're not, you know, like I went I went to uh, jury duty a few months ago, and it was like nobody wanted to be a jury duty in the past. You used to get in a suit and tie and and go do it. So you're starting to see with that sense of self versus sense of duty, they're starting to look at these people who are not having sort of the um, the old patriotic misties about America, right? Like, you know, you're having football players kneeling during a national anthem. You're starting to see Black Lives Matter out doing these things. And all of a sudden, they're not seeing, like, the America that they used to recognize, which is a unified America that in all actuality, people were miserable in terror, you know, in their interior as opposed to publicly. And now that all those emotions and all those sort of things are breaking down, um, I think that it's starting to look very, very odd to them and very frightening. And I don't know that it's true that everybody was miserable underneath that facade. I think that fulfilling duty and public service do bring a great deal of satisfaction to people. You know, we just watched the film Brooklyn last night, my wife and I and a friend of ours. And there's a scene where uh, the main character has emigrated from Ireland and she's living in this boarding house with four other girls. And she's the only one who volunteered to serve the Thanksgiving dinner to like poor and and some homeless irish men in the community and she's talking with the with the reverend and he's like or the priest and he's like these are the men that built the tunnels these are the men that built the washington bridge and the brooklyn bridge and now there's nothing left for them here and there's this beautiful scene of them like pouring them guinness and serving them food and she's she's there and they have this one man to thank the girls who helped serve this takes place in the 50s to thank the girl servers, they have this one man get up with this beautiful Irish tenor voice and sing an acapella song from home in Gaelic. And she's crying, right? That scene and the dinner scene before it where none of the other girls are willing to go and they're like, oh, you got roped into doing that. That is a microcosm of my generation. But actually, if you go and you serve at the Thanksgiving dinner, it's a far more meaningful experience than whatever Snapchatting you were going to do that night with your friends or whatever movie you were going to go see, right? So there's that too. The older generation says, we grew up on that kind of service. It's gone. These kids don't know what that's like. And even though there is some, every generation says, oh, these kids, he's this rotten generation. About that, they're totally right. We've spent a long time empathizing with these folks, and I have my empathy has grown, so thank you very much, Jared. I really think it has. But let's also call some stuff out, right? So there was a generation just like this during the civil rights movement, and we want to build bridges with them because we want change and we want equality. And so we've been talking about how do we empathize? How do we start to build these bridges? But let's also call a spade a spade. So what are the parts of Trump's campaign specifically? What is the stuff that he's dog whistling toward? What are the parts that really we can just confidently say this stuff has no place 
we can we can have these conversations about generational divide and political divide, but we do not need to include these factors. What's that stuff? Well, and and to start off this, and I think this is really really a worthwhile thing to talk about. Um, I'll, I'll say this: I I have gone out of my way to make a big distinction between Trump and his followers. Yeah, totally. Um, I, I, I think, I think Donald Trump is abhorrent. I think he is a really, really dangerous man. I really honestly believe that. Like this isn't, this isn't a character that he's playing. This isn't some sort of caricature that he's, you know, put on like an outfit. I think he's a really, really frightening, dangerous man. Um, the things that have no place in the political process, he has intentionally inflared anger. Like there's a difference between getting people motivated by anger, right? And being like, we really need some, some righteous fury to get out there. Cause I mean, I'll be honest with you. Barack Obama did that. His words were elevated, yeah. right? His words were elevated, but what he was saying was we need to get fired up and there needs to be more or less a revolution, right? Every politician who wins the election more or less says, let's take the country back. That happens. Donald Trump is not just telling people that the country is in danger. He's literally laid the groundwork for the possibility that if he loses, that there could be violence, right? Yeah. He's, he's literally said that this thing is rigged. And I don't know if anybody's very familiar with this, but I spend a lot of time looking at these tweets that he had from when Mitt Romney lost in 2012. And he basically said, this thing is obviously rigged. We need to march on Washington. That's frightening. The very idea that this could turn into something where he actually leads to violence, which, by the way, there have been violence at all these uh, rallies. At the rallies, right? yeah. Almost every one of them. The same thing goes with anger towards Hillary Clinton. I mean, I've seen many, many people talk about assassinating her, hanging her, shooting her, all those things. Those are really, really bad. Also, his whole thing, the Second Amendment deal, all that. Yeah, he said, man, if she wins, I don't know what you guys can do to make this country okay again. Although you Second Amendment people, you might be able to think of something. And stuff like that is really incredibly dangerous. But here is the one thing that has been the most disgusting. From the very beginning of this campaign, he's played a dangerous game by talking about two things at once, right? What he does is, is he will say something offensive, but he will stop right before it is the worst it could be. Right. We're talking racial slurs. We're talking stereotypes. We're talking uh, ideas of violence. He knows how to lead people to those things, right? He knows how to lead people to fill in the blanks that he's not saying. Along with that, and this is the second thing, and he started doing this about a month and a half ago, and and I still can't believe it. All of this, quote-unquote, appeal to African Americans is – really disgusting because he's not actually appealing to African-Americans. He's polling at like, I think 2% of African-Americans. What he's actually doing is he's appealing to voters who would not vote for him because they don't want to appear racist. And he's actually telling them, you're not racist. This is a really bad situation in the African-American community. Remember, they have nothing to lose. Their lives are living hell. Um, you know, they walk outside, and they get shot, which actually all that's doing is parroting stereotypes that have been pushed on the far, far right, uh, the alt-right. We're talking about hate groups. We're talking about nationalists. And this is all the stuff that they do to sort of trump up support in their areas. Yeah. They basically say, you're not racist. 
you care more for those people than they even care for themselves. And it's that sort of language that is uh, incredibly dangerous and has no place in politics. And you're saying, you're not just saying, oh, that's maybe what he's accomplishing. You're saying that is a time-worn strategy by white nationalist groups. That is their argument toward their supporters to sort of salve their racial wounds to make sure they don't think that they're racist by saying, hey, you care about them more than they do. And now Trump is just parroting that argument. Well, that's actually a thing. Um, you've probably heard this, the idea of the Southern strategy, right? And have, have you heard this term? Uh, no, I haven't. Okay. The Southern strategy is this thing that started in the 1960s, of course, during the civil rights era. And basically what this was is we start having these newspapers and television shows that are national, Right. And so you can't go into the South and use slurs. You can't go down there and be just out and out racist because it'll be shown on the nightly news. It'll be on a front page. Right. So what you do is you go in the South and you talk about busing. You talk about the economy. You talk about schools. You talk about segregation. You start talking about those things. And what you're doing is you're actually playing into the more logical part of a person who has racist uh, tendencies. You're actually making them feel as if they're not racist. What they are, they're concerned. And because they're concerned, they look down on the African-American community. Or even now we're looking at, like, you know, Hispanics and, and immigrants and all these people. What you're actually doing is you're a position of power, but you're not racist because you want the best for them and you know better than they do. And so the Southern strategy was this thing cooked up primarily by Richard Nixon, where he would go in the South and he'd basically, you know, tell them that the Democrats handed over the South to African-Americans. I'm the law and order candidate, right? Under me, you're not going to have to deal with African-Americans in the streets. You're not going to have to deal with them like killing each other. You're not going to have to deal with them uh, getting hit by hoses and dogs and clubs, and, you know, in Selma and stuff like that. So you start using these code words and dog whistles. And the entire Trump campaign has been focused on that up to the point of he's actually used Nixon's old law and order phrase. Yeah, he's actually recycled it now. Yeah, he's actually recycled a large deal of the Richard Nixon campaign. And by the way, these things, this this is a clear line in GOP politics from Barry Goldwater at first, but especially Richard Nixon, all the way through Reagan, through George H.W. Bush, um, W. Bush a little bit, but not as much as the rest of them. But now you have Trump, and this is all, it's all being recycled. All that is old is being made new. Okay, let's go back to your time at the rallies. Can you name me one thing that you saw consistently that dismayed you and one thing you saw consistently that gave you some hope? <sighs> yeah, um, you know, this is, I, I think this is one of the most disheartening things about these rallies that I went to. I've been to like eight or nine of them. I went to both of the conventions. I've been to a debate now. The thing that I think bothers me the most is to see Trump supporters swallow the narrative. It's everybody, you know, and it, it's, it's, it's too widespread and it's too consistent for it to be accidental. Um, hmm. You know, it's, it's, it's watching people so easily led into these things. So, for instance, I was at a rally in Charlotte, and this was when, um, you might remember, Trump was – 
having a little bit of a dust up with the Khan family, the, the gold star family. Yeah, after the Democratic convention. Right. And Trump was Trump wasn't doing very well at that point, and he was starting to lose in all the polls. And uh, you know, and Paul Manafort had just you know had just come out that he you know got a bunch of money from the Ukraine, a bunch of stuff like that. So it was looking really really bad, and it was starting to look like Trump might not win. And first of all, his narrative about the media went into high gear, and suddenly the crowd was talking about hurting the media, jailing them, killing them, and then. There was this moment where I saw what all of it had led to. Like I'd, I'd heard racial slurs, threats, all these things consistently. I started hearing people at this rally organically, different groups of people. I started hearing them talk about armed revolt, that if Trump didn't win the election, it was time for a revolution or a civil war or some sort of like mass killing of, of liberals and people. And it definitely made crystal clear that somebody like Trump, and by the way, one of the scariest things for me is what happens if there's a better politician than Trump. Yeah. I've thought about that. Yeah. If somebody, if somebody comes through and they have the same ideas as Trump and the same style as Trump, but they're a better politician, I'm really afraid of that. And it, it, it made it very, very clear that our country can be led into that sort of territory. And that was, that was like one of the most frightening moments I've had basically in my adult life. Wow. Anything at the rallies that give, that gave you hope? Yeah. You know, that's the other thing is there were people who they would go to these rallies and, you know, they'd be wearing Trump shirts, Trump hats, Trump, whatever. And they'd be sitting there and they would hear some of the, the comments. They'd hear some of the racism, some of the sexism, xenophobia. And you could tell that it not only did it bother them, bother them but it disgusted them. Really? And, yeah. And they, and they left. They, they huh. left. And they, they, they heard these things. And I saw this on multiple occasions. I saw people look at each other, recognize in their friend or family member, mother or father. They recognized in each other a disgust. And then they left. And, you know, it was like one of those things where it's like, you know, you hear about the madness of crowds or you hear about, yeah. and by the way, I'm not, I'm not going to sit here and compare Trump to Hitler or anything like that, but you hear about like this idea that crowds could be swayed by the power of each other. And they absolutely can, but it made me feel better to see that there were people who maybe supported him or maybe came in there with a, a, a preconceived notion or a bias. Yeah. And they saw it in person and they, you know, were revolted by it. Going back to, you mentioned that it dismayed you how many people at the rallies just consumed Trump's narrative whole. Give me an example of a narrative on the far left that some people are, you know, maybe some Bernie supporters or whatever are swallowing whole that it doesn't have the hate maybe and the racism, but it's also not going to help anybody. And it's also false. Um, I don't know if you've heard this, but one of them in particular is a sort of ageism where basically liberals say we're waiting on that generation to die. Yeah, I've heard that. Yeah. Right. I may have I may have said it. (laughs) Well, and by the way, that's one of the things is I think that that's that frustration. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think that a lot of people can be won over by it. And they're basically like. God, things are going to be so much better when our grandparents just die. And I think that's like a really sort of like a pushing away of humanity that I don't think needs to be there, right? 
That's definitely one of them. The next is, and, and again, this breaks my heart to even talk about it. You know, people all the time talk about the, the liberal elite, right? They talk about like, uh, you know, those snobs in academia or, you know, the, the, the white collar workers looking down at people. There is a classism there. Yeah. And um, a lot of people look at the Trump movement and they basically think it's a bunch of, you know, backwater hillbillies, a bunch of people who are too stupid to know any better. And again, that goes with the idea that people who are poor are stupid and they deserve to be poor. And this idea that this is just some sort of redneck revolution or something like that, when in fact, a lot of these Trump rallies, I mean, you'll see more wealthy people than you do poor people. Interesting. Like wealthy middle-aged people who look like they just came from like the country club, yeah. and and you know there there are a lot of people who believe it or not aspire to be Donald Trump, and they look at him and they're like, well, why can't I behave like that? Why am I? Why do I suffer consequences if I say the things that Trump does? And they think that'll help the world. Um, but the uh, the classism and the ageism are definitely two things that I hear a lot that people don't like talking about. When you talk about the left wanting to say, oh, those are all a bunch of poor people, and if they're poor, they probably deserve to be poor, it's interesting how that is the exact argument that people on the left hate that the right makes about minorities, and they're making the same argument about these poor white people. I actually think it's all related. I think at the heart of this thing, really? um, it's, it's economics. I had this moment while I was covering the Trump campaign. Where I suddenly thought I realized what racism was. And what I think racism, or sexism, or xenophobia, I think what prejudice is, is when you have the need to feel superior, but you lack the evidence. And so you need to find... (laughs) That's so good. So you need to find things in other people that make you feel inherently better than them without needing the evidence of yourself. I'm just shaking my head and like... I'm just like, preach it. Amen. No (laughs) one can see that right now. Well, and I think that's what's happening with, and by the way, that even happens on the left and the right too. Oh, I was, I was specifically thinking about the left in myself. Right. And, and I think that I think at its heart is that we're still like, we're, we're out of the great recession. Right. But we're still feeling the great recession. Like we still have this large group of people who, we have no idea what to do with them. We have no idea how to help them. We don't know how to employ them. Um, you know, you have like, I mean, quite frankly, drug abuse within um, the African-American and the white communities are out of control. And, you know, you have all these little factors that aren't being handled and they're not being fixed. And so as a result, we have to be angry or feel superior to other people. Yeah. And so I actually think that neither party is exactly taking care of class. They're not taking care of working class people. And I don't think it has to do with black or white. And by the way, that's not saying you're saying there isn't inherent racism because we have a systemic racist problem in this country. We're going to get to that on future episodes. You can be Good. You can rest assured. So, <laughs> so, and that's, that's not to say that there isn't systemic racism because as sure as I sit here, there is. But what it is is systemic racism is keeping people in a class based on their race. Interesting. On the, on the other side of it, it's perpetual classism. It's this idea that that like 
people um, are in these communities and they deserve to be in them. And if they can't learn a new skill, well, what are you going to do? Yeah, rather than keeping people in their class based on their race, we are keeping people in their class based on their class. That's exactly right. And so what actually ends up happening is a lot of people talk about the shrinking middle class and the middle class is absolutely shrinking. But the working class is growing. And the reason that they're growing is because you have, um, you know, you've moved to service jobs. You've moved toward um, this idea of having to get higher education, which, by the way, puts you in debt that you're never going to be able to take care of. Or we focus on consumerism and buying things well beyond your means, and you're always in debt with that. And so what we actually have is we basically have an indentured servitude class that is just there. And the only time that they're used is when the Republican Party scares them. Right. Because in, in essence, if we're going to talk about the history of the Republican Party, the Republican Party at its heart has less members than the Democratic Party. The Democratic Party is much more of the, you know, quote unquote, party of the people, if you will. The Republican Party is a group that believes in free markets and interventionism, both things that never, ever help the working class. What they have to do is they have to convince the working class that it's in their best interest and safety to vote along with them. Yeah. So you have entire group of people who have been manipulated for years, but they've never actually been served pretty much by either party. And, and you know, the more and more that the Democratic Party moves towards tech, moves towards tort, those types of things, and globalism, the less and less that the working class even has a voice on either side of it. So you can see why a guy gets up there and he has these working class trappings that he puts on a dumb hat. He, you know, talks like a normal person, even though he's a billionaire who was given all his money. And lives in literally a gold house. Right, which is the funniest thing is he's the farthest thing from a working class person. But by simply pretending that he's working class and saying the things that working class people feel and think, he's actually become this focus for them. And he's the first person to do that for them in, oh, my God, since George W. Bush, I'd say, since, you know, he was out clearing brush and putting on cowboy hats. Man. So we're going to wrap up here in a minute, but. The one thing I think we have not talked about as much that I think really relates to uh, your research for your book, can you talk a little bit more about what changed in media? So in 1987, Fairness Doctrine was repealed, and you know, then you have cable news exploding, then you have the internet exploding, and so you have more and more of these niche news outlets and, and voices who can get whatever they want out there, and there's always an audience for something. Can you talk more about what that's done and has that hit the right harder than it's hit the left, just empirically speaking? Well, it, it has and it hasn't. I mean, the left is still getting its news um, the way that it wants it, but the left press is a lot more um, sort of journalistic, right? It's a lot more about outrage. It's a lot more about, about facts and figures coming in. The right has actually gone so far, and, and this is one of the more interesting things that I'm finding in my research, they're even turning off Fox News because Fox News doesn't give them what they want anymore. What they want is they want the conspiracy, right? They want an even simpler breakdown of why things have happened. So what they're turning to are things like Alex Jones and InfoWars or um, Breitbart, which actually the, you know, the publisher of Breitbart is Trump's campaign head, yeah, right? right? So he actually somehow or another, and this all happened around the first presidential debate, um, whenever Megyn Kelly questioned him about how he treated women, and he said, you know, she has blood coming out of her eyes or wherever. Yeah. Um, 
that was actually this moment where Fox News and the Republican right, the far, far fringe right, they split. And actually, they started looking at Fox News a little warily because Trump started talking about how they necessarily weren't fair. Now, they've come back together a little bit, but what it actually did in that rift is it led towards this more conspiracy-natured thing, yeah. which is why all of a sudden you're starting to hear everyone talk about Hillary Clinton's health, right? You even you have like conversations about whether or not she's brain-damaged and, right. and you know uh, whether or not she killed Vince Foster when her husband was in office. and So you've actually seen that sort of move further. I want to end with some practical tips for everybody. So one thing that I can recall from earlier is if you are about to have a further polarizing conversation with someone with whom you disagree, find some common ground. Admit that some plank of your own party's platform is not to your liking. It shouldn't be too hard. I mean, if each party has roughly 50% of America, there's bound to be things we disagree with, right? And and people that we didn't like or policies we didn't like. So that's one is like find something that you can you can give some ground, you can seed some ground on and try and build a bridge. Do you have anything else that you could recommend to people? Ask them about them as a person. Hmm. Like one of the things to talk about is because the political is an arena, Right. It's uh, politics is all a metaphor for how we live together. Right. And it's actually about this cohesion as a group. It's not about the personal. What's been what's happened is we've made it personal. I actually um, I took this road trip with a Republican and uh, that I had never met. I didn't know whatsoever. I drove uh, I think it was like seven hours to Ohio and seven hours back to a Hillary Clinton rally. And so I just did it to see if we could get along. We got Hmm. along famously. Once we started talking about ourselves and once we started noticing where we were as people and where we'd come from and what we had been through, all of a sudden we started seeing seeing things through the lens of each other. And I started realizing that it has more to do with sort of um, chemistry differences, biological differences and how we actually saw politics. It had to do with the same things that changed the way we even choose how we wear clothes, right? It was an inherent difference biologically. But when we saw each other as people, we could meet on a common ground and we could disagree on politics, but have those at the side. It was almost like the difference between, you know, you go to an Italian restaurant, what do you order? One person gets red sauce, the other gets white sauce. And so that's just something that happens that doesn't define your relationship. And so when you talk personally, you move the political onto the outside. So, when grandma says we need to keep those Muslims out of the country, I say, would you like some white sauce on your pasta? <laughs> well, I was just going to say when it comes to grandma, cause I'm really involved in this grandma situation now, but hypothetical grandma, when you're talking to her, um, one of those things to remember is that whatever she votes for, whatever she ends up doing, it literally isn't about you, right? It's not, It's not her voting to say that she's going to go take Daniel's vote off the map, right? Right. Grandma grandma isn't Donald Trump who can actually enact this stuff. Grandma is her own person, and this happens to be something that you guys probably aren't going to agree on. Although, 
I will say that I think over time, and I'll watch this happen with my dad. My dad was one of those people who was definitely influenced by Fox News, right? He was very, very conservative, very, very like tight in that community. And the more that I talked to him and the more that I was respectful of him but also told him my viewpoints, the more he respected me and my intellect, and he ended up looking at it from an objective point of view. Hmm. And so I don't think that these things can be one in a day. Like there's never a debate Totally, totally. It's about time. And once time goes by, I think once somebody, and this goes back to the fairness doctrine, right? The more that you hear opposing viewpoints, the more space you give them in your head. And whether you agree with them or not, you'll decide later once you weigh them. So I don't think it's about immediacy. I think it's about how things can change over time. Yeah. And we can also just try and look for the narratives on our own side that we have accepted unquestioningly. Every time we think to ourselves, that person must be an idiot, you know, we just got to turn the mirror back on ourselves if we can and say, is there anything I have taken uncritically because my whole community agrees on it? I, and I think that's absolutely true because the more and more that I look at this election, the more that I am convinced that unless we change the way we treat each other, this isn't the end. This is actually, I mean, we're just, you know, we're on a roller coaster and it's not going to stop. The more and more that we treat each other as opponents and the more that we treat each other as enemies, the closer and closer we get to an actual breakdown in the, in the, in the civic process. Yeah, let's, uh, let's do our best and cross our fingers that that doesn't happen. Well, Jared, thank you so much for being on the show. Well, thank you so much. Uh, where can people find you? Twitter, etc.? On Twitter, I am at JY Sexton, and my website is jysexton.com. Great. Thanks, man. Thank you. To keep the conversation going, join the Facebook group, Depolarize Podcast Discussion Group. Also, Jared will be accepting follow-up questions, and we will record a short segment later on. So feel free to email those to depolarizepodcast at gmail.com or post them on that Facebook group. Also, there should be some show notes up for this episode at depolarizepodcast.com. And episode two of Depolarize is available right now wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening.